The following audio is via a Skype call. Thank you, Eric Kramer. Hi, everybody. Happy Friday. Happy weekend to come. This is Gary Nance. I'm Suzanne Mitchell. And we are joined at the board today by bad boy Benny Mathers. It's a Friday, so why wouldn't we be in his good company? How are you doing today, sir? Doing well and officially happy spring. Woo! Yes. Oh, well, we're, we're happy for that. There, we don't get the seasonal affective disorder because there's no shortage of sunshine where we live in Sarasota, Florida. Quiet. You know, Come I was going to compliment like, you really? on your weather in the 70s, but if you're going to be a butthead about it. You knew it was 72 all day long with no clouds. And we're sweltering in the summer sweat for a long run. All you have to do is dodge the occasional wildfire and make oh. sure that you can breathe, and then you have no problems. Oh, yeah, them fighting words right there, fighting words. <laughs> <laughs> it's good to be back, though, by the way. Well, we are very, very happy that uh, the weather is so gloriously mm-hmm. like in the, in the Pacific Northwest, western Washington in particular. That's just great news. That, that's kind of national news. Like, hey, look at those guys out there. That looks like some fine weather. We are here and ready to talk once again with a gentleman named Mark Matusik. This is visit number three for Mark. He is, uh, as I indicated in the social media earlier today, he is a well-traveled soul searcher and deep thinker. That's exactly the kind of guy he is. He is a philosopher for our day. And I, you know, philosophy is the kind of thing that gets made fun of when you choose it as a major in college, unless you're going to go on to law school. I think it would come in pretty handy. But people, yeah, you're going to go get get your uh, uh, money by being a professional philosopher. Well, in a manner of speaking, when you look at life through the philosophical lens, whatever you do, you are being there ipso facto, baby, a professional philosopher just because of the way you look at life and people and all that goes on. The first time we spoke to Mark was in 2011, so we that was actually eight years ago, quite a long time ago. You were so impressed, you kept well, saying, was, let's get him back. We read his book, Ethical Wisdom, and what he said in that book has stayed with me to this day. And as a matter of fact, it, it kind of uh, repeats itself when I look at our political landscape and the ideas of ethical wisdom and where did ethics go in politics in our political landscape. And then we had him on um, a couple of years ago, a year ago, a little more than a year ago, when he went to visit Mother Mira in India. So this is the third time we're having him on and we're going to talk about uh, a book that we haven't read, but we know something about and so why don't you go ahead and give him his mad props and let's bring him on, Gary. Sure, we're on a fairly tight time schedule with Mark, so we will make the most of it. Mark Matusik is an award-winning author of Sex, Death, Enlightenment, a true story. The Boy He Left Behind, another book is When You're Falling, Dive, and the aforementioned Ethical Wisdom, What Makes Us Good. He writes regularly for Psychology Today, Purple Clover, The Huffington Post, that's a biggie, and Contemplative Journal, and has contributed to numerous national magazines and literary anthologies. He is on the faculty at the New York Open Center and the Omega Institute, famous place that, and is a frequent teacher at Miriam's Well, Old Stone Farm, and the Mandala Center. His introspective writing courses have helped thousands of people transform their lives through self-inquiry. I love that notion, self-inquiry, which is the mission of his company, Mark Matusik Media, LLC. And he is on KKNW today with Manson Mitchell. We're happy to say, Mark, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot, Gary and Suzanne. It's wonderful to be with you again. Well, it's, it's wonderful to talk philosophy with you because, in a way, except for academic philosophy, you kind of—it seems like we're all thrown on our own resources here. The idea of ethical wisdom, what, what makes us good. If you talk about ethics, they're highly placed people in our government and in society, quite probably, who could, with fervor, say, "Well, sir, you know, you talk about ethics, and that's your point of view. But what we offer is alternative ethics." <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And, our, and, and, and the other sides are fake ethics, I guess. Uh, That's right. Fake, fake ethics. Fake Very ethics. good. He's getting into fake the spirit ethics. of this. I like this. <laughs> That's great. And, I, I mentioned, uh, and Mark, I mentioned it in the sense of 
wondering what the new normal is for this generation there, which really is a multi-generational landscape across North America. And it, as an American, I look at it and I go, wow, yeah. if, if people are going to live by text, I mean, email is getting to be passe now. That's getting to be too much bother. So if we're going to be a texting society, if we're going to be leaving messages to voicemail because people don't pick up anymore, and I'm as guilty as the rest of that, if this is the kind of communications society we are in, what drives that kind of move toward succinctness without clarity, many times without even good punctuation, Mark. I just don't know how it's possible to grow a soul and mature your philosophical point of view if you're even interested in doing so by dumbing down and splicing our communications in such a manner as we see across North America today. Yeah, Gary, you're right. It's, an abs- it's, a, it's a major problem. I think it comes from a combination of people being in overwhelm in their lives, uh, technology reaching a point where we can connect with one another uh, so many different ways with, you know, in, in ever more abbreviated uh, fashion uh, and and a kind of growing dissociation and alienation that's happening uh, in our social uh, fabric. You know, you hear this even with kids in high school. They've, they've done studies uh, to show that, you know, kids are afraid of having real conversations now. They don't want to confront one another. Uh, the idea of calling someone on the phone is almost considered rude now. They feel it feels invasive and intrusive. Uh, so, if high school students are feeling that way, you you can imagine how busy, uh, quote unquote, grown ups in jobs are avoiding one another with you know with, with increasing you know in, increasing frequency and uh, and almost um, opprobrium and 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 uh, criticism for people who want to have deeper. You know more, uh, you know more direct communication. It's it's very very hard now to kind of go against the grain, go against the uh, against uh, the stream, uh, and and get more human. You know, having said that, I think because people see this happening and, and are worried about it, you know, uh, there are pockets of people who are unplugging. Uh, a friend of mine was just at a social event where people had to check their phones at the door because they wanted people to have actual conversations and not be completely preoccupied with their, with their text and, and, and their phones buzzing and beeping during, during dinner. So it, it, it's something I think there's going to be a backlash, but it's going to be a slow and hard backlash because these things have just taken such, uh, you know, such root in, in, in the culture. Well, you are so right. You you catch some of those really early television shows from the 60s and the 70s, and um, I say, well, here here we are in, in a uh, in a criminal uh, scene going on here, and they they can't just pick up their cell phone and call somebody. <laughs> <I know. laughs> and the husband gives strict instructions not to be called at work. June, I. Right. I've told you right. not to call me at work, but but dear, something's wrong with the beaver. <laughs> well, go deal with it. Exactly. But you've heard that in France, I think it is now, it's illegal to email employees on the over the weekend. That, that oh, no, really? I, I had not heard that. <laughs> There's a movement yeah. we would like to see sweep across yeah. the Great Pond. Yeah, Employ- employers can't do that anymore. So so they're 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 now starting to set up some controls. On you know constant uh, connect connectivity and 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 social media, but like I said, it's going to be a slow slog you know to kind of push back the tide because we've we've moved into you know such a, a kind of a micro attention uh, ADD uh, moment that that people just they want their answer they want it now and they're going to do it in as few words as possible and so there's there's a lot of room for miscommunication. Uh, and that's what worries me about social media is it, it is the the decline in clarity, uh, the decline in uh, intimacy, uh, and it, we have to be really really careful uh, how we kind of let relationships founder, you know, because we're not willing to kind of reach across the void and, and actually say hello to people and explain heart to heart, face to face. Uh, what we need to communicate. 
Well, having said all that, you're talking to a couple of people who have done a fair amount of writing and a fair amount of editing and a fair amount of communicating, especially on the radio for the last 12 years. And uh, I'm interested in this idea of writing to awaken, which is um, a more recent book of yours. And I I just want to say that... um, A couple of years ago, in 2017, I decided I was going to make it a spiritual practice to keep a daily gratitude journal, which I Mm. did more or less successfully. And what I mean by that is I I had an entry for uh, most every day, although sometimes I skipped a day or two and then I had to go back and remember what it was I was grateful for two days ago. And I didn't Mm. do it in 2018. But in 2019, I said, I miss that particular spiritual practice. And so I went back, and to this day, I have not missed a day. I have been exact every single night writing down the things that I was grateful for that day. So I see in, uh, just by the title of your book, Writing to Awaken, I can see my own mind at work when I'm doing a daily journal entry. And so I'm curious about what your work is that you are are doing, which brought about the book of writing to awaken. Well, you know, journaling is, is an, is a great practice. Uh, morning pages as Julia Cameron calls them in the artist way. It's a, it's a fantastic practice. Just allowing our minds to, to free associate, to un, to unload, uh, our thoughts and feelings that that's all that's all terrific um, and of course a gratitude journal is, is a great way to remind ourselves you know what what to be grateful for and it's also a great antidote to stress and, and self-pity um, but what I'm doing with writing awaken is somewhat different you know there's an ancient practice in spiritual life uh, called self-inquiry uh, and it goes across traditions there's Christian self-inquiry there's Buddhist self-inquiry uh, there's Hindu self-inquiry but what it essentially is, is asking ourselves deep questions in order to access the wisdom that's already within us. Uh, so writing for self-inquiry is as, as a much more, as a, it's, it's a deeper kind of practice. Uh, and we do it in order to free ourselves from the stories of the mind. You know, we are what anthropologists call homo nerens. We're the storytelling ape. That's what we do. We tell stories as a way of uh, navigating our lives. It, it, we are hardwired to do that. Uh, storytelling is a fantastic thing. The problem is that we forget that we are the storytellers and not the story. We end up mistaking who we are, essentially, for the, the fictions that we're composing about ourselves. Uh, and that's how most of us, the vast majority of us, live our lives uh, inside the, the, the narrative mind. Uh, it's not until we start to question those stories, though, that we can begin to transform our lives, that we can actually uh, free ourselves up from these obsolete narratives that have held us back and kept us in place. Because the mind is, is, is like a child. It believes what we tell it until we start to question our own thoughts. So writing to awaken is a methodology for questioning the stories that we tell ourselves that hold us back in our lives, that define who we think we are, what, who we think we're not, what we're afraid of, what we're not afraid of, uh, and I just found that doing this for the last 12 years, uh, it, it's, a, it's a profound practice. And I'm blown away by the transformations that people go through doing this work for even a weekend. I just came back from doing seven workshops on the West Coast. And I have to tell you, the, the light bulbs that go off for people who say they've been in therapy for, for 10 years, 15 years, and they've never asked themselves these kinds of questions. It's extraordinary to me. So I, I love doing this work. And in the love of the work, I'm wondering, uh, a man of your intellect and experience, and you were so well-traveled, let me ask you, Mark, do you find, yourselves from, uh, find yourself from time to time having to say no to one thing in order to be able to say yes to some other opportunity? You seem like a man of many options. Uh, you know, I'm, it's funny you should mention that, Gary, because I've been trying to kind of do everything for the last couple of years as, as the teaching has, has taken on a life of its own. So I, wear, I feel like I'm wearing three hats. I'm, I'm a professional writer. Uh, I'm now, a, a, at least half of my time goes to teaching. And I also run my Seekers Forum, which is my monthly spiritual uh, online group. So 
I'm wearing three different hats, and I'm, I need to start uh, pulling back because I can't do what I'm doing in a quality way and not burn out, you know, indefinitely and not burn out. So I'm starting to say no to things, and, uh, and, and it, the good news is it helps you get clearer on what matters to you and what you're really interested in. I mean, I, am, I do now need to start saying no. I look at my schedule for 2019, and <laughs> my, my head spins. The 2020 is going to be a little, a little uh, have more space in it, less travel, um, more writing time, and, and I want to do writing to awaken. Uh, I want to take it to corporations and businesses more and more because I think it's it's deeply needed there, uh, and that will enable me to do fewer you know workshops where I'm jumping, where I'm doing so much travel. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that next year. Why do you think it's important to take it to corporations, Mark? Because, well, first of all, corporations are, you know, people, the employees in corporations and leaders in corporations are people, and they're dealing with their, their you know, a unique set of stressors, uh, fears, uh, power, uh, power issues, uh, issues of meaning. Uh, how does my story fit into the story of the place where I work? You know, many people find themselves at odds with their own, you know, with their own workplace and the people that they work with, simply because what matters to them is not represented by what the the company is doing. So we need to question where we are spending forty plus hours a week uh, and how it's contributing to or or taking away from our sense of personal purpose. Uh, and, and so one of the things I'm excited about doing uh, this year is 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 uh, approaching corporations and businesses, organizations, with this question of how does the how does the individual story fit into the larger story? That will increase. That will improve teamwork. That will improve uh, morale. It'll also increase innovation. You know, you're talking about corporations, and as I'm listening to you talking, I am thinking that this applies to any place where people are gathered, whether it is work, church, um, an organization, you know, no matter what it is, I think when you have groups of people, you have this situation of people bringing their, their pasts with them and their certain way of looking at things with them uh, so that um, it involves how, how do you get people to work together successfully? So, uh, Gary and Suzanne, I had to call him back. He uh, dropped oh. the line there, so okay. I'm calling him back. Maybe we yes, can get hi, him. There he is. There, so, there you go. Sorry okay. about that, guys. I was trying to get him back. Uh, I, repeat I your question, if you don't mind. I just said, uh, Mark, when uh, when we lost you, that it seems to me that it could work in any type of way where people are gathered together, and I and I see where people bring their their pasts and their uh, experiences and their baggage with them to any situation, whether it's your 40-hour-a-week job or if it is a, a, a club, a church, anything. And there he goes again. How about we take a break, guys? We might need to do that. I could use one. Okay. I think oh. we all could use one. <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll get Mark back in the meantime, and um, stay tuned. Listen to this brief break. We'll be right back. Preceding audio was via a Skype call. Staying connected with Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell is easy. Just go to manceandmitchell.com for the latest info on topics and guests. Friend Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell on their Facebook pages and like the Mance and Mitchell show page at facebook.com slash manceandmitchell. If you're on Twitter, share a follow with Gary and Suzanne at Mance Mitchell. Join Gary and Suzanne Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for an unusual show that covers everything from personal growth to the paranormal. Here's an amazing act. Here's a tremendous act. Here's a startling act. The amazing, the thrilling, the greatest, spectacular, incredible, exciting, wonderful, world-famed, most unusual novelty act. The home of the A-Team of Alternative Talk is manceandmitchell.com. Heard right here on Alternative Talk 1150 a.m. or streaming live from your computer anywhere. If you talk, they will hear you. We all want our kids to grow up safe and healthy. So we show them how. And we tell them with honest conversations that let them know what we expect. Not just one time, but every chance we get. 
That's especially important when it comes to alcohol and other drugs. Kids not only need to know the dangers and how to avoid them, they need to hear it often from you. And when it comes to pain medications, opioids, they need to know that they should never be taken without a prescription and never shared with friends or family. It's dangerous and illegal. So talk with your kids and guide them through the challenges of growing up safe and healthy. Because when you talk, they hear you. For more information about talking with your kids about underage use of alcohol and other drugs, visit underagedrinking.samhsa.gov. So talk, you can do it if you try. On Friday, Manson Mitchell welcomes Mark Matusik, who talks about personal awakening and creative excellence through transformational writing. On Saturday, Lauren Archer discusses the joy of mindful living, the power of hypnosis, and cognitive behavioral approaches to a better life. Bringing you fascinating talk for 12 years. We are Manson Mitchell, Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 on Alternative Talk AM 1150. Talk radio with a purpose. Alternative Talk 1150. Welcome back to Manson Mitchell and our guest this hour, Mark Matusik. We are talking about his his most recent um, book called Writing to Awaken, but Gary and I have also read Ethical Wisdom. Mark, if you have written several books, uh, if people want to get your books or connect with you, where is the best place to do that? Oh, well, they can come to my website, which is uh, markmatusic.com, uh, and they can also visit me at theseekersforum.com. That's all uh, one word, uh, and that's my monthly uh, monthly discussion group. It's an online, it's a global online community, and we have wonderful conversations every uh, month. So folks can either come through the website or, or go to theseekersforum.com, and and they can contact me through either of those. Okay, very good. Seekers Forum or markmatusic.com. Yeah. Mark, uh, going back to the late 70s, and man, that what a long, strange trip it's been. But when I go back that far, I remember a time when I subscribed to Interview Magazine. Mm-hmm. And I believe that you were very strongly connected to it and helped to run it. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. I started off as a proofreader, and I worked my way up to uh, being uh, an editor. And then I became the senior editor of the magazine for Three years from 82 through 85. So you'd be a good guy to go to to talk about Interview Magazine and Andy Warhol. <laughs> That's <laughs> great. I, I find him fascinating. Who didn't? They're a cultural icon. He's been, uh, he's been off the stage. He left the building some time ago. And yet, this is his lingering influence. I find this so interesting, Mark, that Andy Warhol is featured recently in a Wendy's ad, some old commercial that he did, uh-huh. and it's brought back because he has this lingering presence, and good for him. There, in your estimate of the man, because you knew him, because you worked with and for him, I, in this sort of free-form way, it's a, a kind of a free and open discussion we're having right now. There, what is your estimate of the man and his influence on American culture, given all these years of perspective? When you look at, at the man, Andy Warhol, look at his productivity, look at the magazine interview, what stands out most about his influence on your life? Well, his influence on my life and his, and his influence on the culture are, are, are very different. The influence on the culture has been tremendous uh, and kind of genius. I mean, Andy had this, this preternatural ability to have his, to find the pulse of where things were going, and then uh, gear his art in that direction. So while a lot of artists, you know, go inward uh, for their inspiration, Andy also always went outward. You know, there's a famous story about uh, him when he was having trouble finding, after he, he was started out, uh, you know, doing uh, advertising design, and when he wanted to start being a fine artist, he didn't know what to, you know, what to do. He didn't really have any vision. So somebody said to him, well, what do you love the most? And he said, money. And he said, then you should paint dollar bills. And that's exactly what he started doing. And he tapped into the zeitgeist. Then he moved from that to Campbell's soup cans. And you know, Andy was about looking outward for his vision rather than looking inward. Uh, so, And I think that cuts both ways as an artist. It, 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 it 
tremendously commercial, uh, and it can it can be rather you know shallow and, and superficial. So I have mixed feelings about his legacy as an artist, but I have no uh, mixed feelings about his genius, which was absolutely uh, genuine. Now, personally, he was my boss for three years, and I had all the you know all the conflicts with him that that you one tends to have with a boss. Uh, he was very hard to work for because he was um, he was quite tough on the staff. Uh, and Andy, you know, this is not a secret. He had a lot of personal insecurities, and insecurities you know tend to manifest across the board, you know, including in the workplace. So there were ways that he was difficult that uh, that were, were became a struggle for a lot of us on the magazine. Uh, but I'm grateful to him as well because I had the opportunity to meet an amazing uh, a range of, of, of artists and, and people in, in, in very extraordinary people in various fields directly because of Andy and because of because of, of the magazine. So I'm grateful to it. Uh, he was a difficult man. He was a very, very hard boss. And I think he was culturally uh, a, a visionary. Culturally a visionary. Absolutely. And still a mystery to me because take, for example, the Campbell's soup can. You can look at that and take away whatever impressions you will, whatever seems to fit. It was, I don't know which broadcast, but I happened to mention that particular painting, Mark. And when I did, I said something along the lines of, I think what Andy Warhol, I could be completely off base. I'm no art historian or critic, that's for sure. But it seems to me that what Andy was saying there is that we are a society at the time he painted that, and I think it's continued, if anything, intensified, a society that celebrates that which is homogenous and therefore recognizable, and most of all, marketable. We're a society yep. of fads. We're a society of marketability, and the ultimate example can be found, one of the ultimate examples anyway, in a simple can of soup that you can get at any store in any town USA. Yeah, that's true. And he was shameless about, about marketing. Um, he cared much more about marketing and advertising and money uh, than he did about uh, than he did about the deeper issues uh, of the culture. You know, they, Andy once said that for him, the perfect magazine, if he could have anything, would be nothing but advertisement. And he meant it because for him, that it would have been ad revenue. Uh, of course, the the visuals on ads can be quite you know, beautiful, and that's one thing. An interview was great for is it was the, the photography and and photographers and companies you know did some of their best visual work for us um and it and it, it leaves out an awful lot so you know marketing is terrific but you know what 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 then you know where where, where does marketing take you it, it's marketing is a tool of capitalism and and i'm not anti-capitalism but we all know that it has its limitations and blind spots and andy was completely impervious to them he could not have cared less. I don't think he had a political bone in his body. You know what's interesting about that, Mark? When I when I think back to the various people that I've worked with, especially ones who were very influential or I worked with for a long time, I know that they helped to kind of shape the way I look at things. They helped give me a different perspective that was not my own, and and then I had to kind of see. W- how somebody else looked at the very same thing. When you spent this time with him and were influenced by him, you, you were saying that you know he didn't care about um, you know metaphysics or or spiritualism to the extent that you have. You've gone quite the other way. But I would also think that he he would have influenced you to look at the world in a particular way, whether you accept it or you reject it. He had to have that kind of influence on you. Well, he had the influence on me, Suzanne, that, you know, that a, a parent you disagree with has on you. They, they kind of give you a sense of what you don't want to do, what you don't believe, <laughs> and who you don't want to be. And I'm, I'm not trashing Andy. He, he was fantastic. Oh, I know. He was wonderful, right. but his vision, I found his vision of the world um, pretty threadbare and, and uninspiring. He cared about money and fame and beauty uh, and youth. Those were the things he cared about more than anything else, and fame would be the fifth. So that 
you know, that creates a certain kind of world. You know, the, the, it, you know Donald Trump, it's, it's kind of a Trumpian world. It's all about uh, appearances, and it's all about the money, and it's all about power. And those were things that Andy cared deeply about. So um, I, I, what I learned from him, though, was that everyone has a unique gift. You know, his famous saying about 50, uh, everyone will be famous for 15 minutes in the future. Uh, there's truth to that. And we're seeing it borne out in social media. Forgot, you know, right. with. And, and, and I, I learned something from him about that. I think it's absolutely true that the mundane, even the most mundane things, and people can be really, really fascinating. Um, and Andy's big trick was doing, you know, question and answer, just turning the tape recorder on and letting it run and not editing things. I thought, I think that's brilliant. You know, letting people hear the ahems and the and the and the the mistake uh, in an interview could be absolutely fascinating. So I think, you know, I think there was some. I did learn that from him, um, but I, I kind of put, I, I would kind of limit it to that. I think. Well, I'm also wondering if you've kind of um, picked up, either from him or from elsewhere, this idea of, um, you know, reading some tea leaves and having a sense about where we might be going as a culture. The last time that we had you on the show, we were talking about... Um, I think we lost him again. It was at that clicking yeah, noise. There it was. Nice. I will try Yikes. that. So, I know. Uh, Benny, what's your take on the Campbell soup can? <laughs> <laughs> Very interesting. Well, try and get him back. Yeah, I am. All right. I just knew there was something to be mined there. I mean, if I, and yeah. it would be a challenge working with a personality oh, yeah. as unique as Andy Warhol's. And I, I just go, wow, you know, I, to be related to him, to have to answer to him, that would be a unique challenge. Well, anytime there's an exceptionally strong personality like that, that you are dealing with on a daily basis, that's always, um, well, challenging. And, yes. and it does affect you. And, and so that's why I was thinking, you know, perhaps this has Mark looking at life in a, a different way because he did work with somebody who was that strong in his thinking and in his personality. Whether or not you, you are thinking the same way, it's, it's just the fact that he does have a unique perspective on the world. He's back, by the way. All right, great. Let's try this again. Um, Okay. Okay. Hi, Mark. We were just <laughs> carrying on about Andy Warhol in your absence. <laughs> yeah. That I wanted to get to that that uh, before I forget. There and Suzanne has a point she wants to continue. But this idea of the meaning—it's still debated. The meaning of in the future, everyone will be famous for 15 minutes. That it presages social media. I also think it indicates that if anybody can be famous at least for 15 minutes, it doesn't really matter too much what you have to say as long you as long as you position yourself so that you can be the one to say it. Yeah. Well, look at Facebook. That's what social media is all about. That's a that's a brilliant, concise um, definition of of the value of social media is it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't even matter with the quality of what you say, but, uh, you have a plat, if you have a platform to say it, then you, you will, you'll, you'll, you'll be able to speak to your, your particular niche. And, and that's, uh, that's part of what, and Andy would have absolutely loved Facebook. <laughs> he would have loved Twitter, particularly also he wasn't, he wasn't a really a, a word, a words guy. So he would have been very happy with Twitter. Um, and, yeah, it's 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 it, it's it has a democratizing effect uh, that that cuts both ways. Obviously, you get voice, you get you know voices from from uh, the 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 youth who are you know who are um, activating against against gun guns. They've done incredible things with social media, and then you yes. get the crazies. You get the crazies. Yes, but enough about Alex Jones. There, who then, uh, I'm not sure if he filed a lawsuit or not. I'd have to look that up. But Alex Jones took great umbrage, as I suppose you would in his situation, because uh, YouTube didn't want his action anymore. And you can see damn near anything on YouTube. But it just there was this reaction to Alex Jones. Like, is this representing the values of the vehicle itself in the world of communications? And um, if YouTube dumped him with finality, I'm perfectly satisfied with that outcome. But there are those who are going to say this is stifling First Amendment rights. Yeah, that, well, well, let them say that. I'm, 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 I'm think it's fantastic. 
that YouTube has done this, and and I think we we need more oversight. Mm. Yeah, that's something that Gary and I talk about. We are not anti-regulation. We we're looking at the effects of less and less regulation currently. And uh, interesting about what has come up with Boeing all this week about, you know, you have to pay extra for the extra safety. And uh, and that's where lives are really at stake. A life-saving mechanism has become an upgrade Yes. in, air, yeah, in uh, exactly. aviation. In the world yeah, of yeah. aviation, well, that's going to cost you. And then, you know, we'll also uh, armor all the rims and, and whatnot. That's just insane to me, They're almost criminally insane as I look at it. Yeah. I agree with you. I think Boeing should be held uh, responsible for this because they didn't provide the training that telepilots needed uh, in the case of that emergency. That, Like you said, that was an extra. I mean, how could that be an extra? It's, it's, it's ludicrous. Again, you know, we're just talking about the the regulations really needed. We were we were looking at when I was on TV last night about when C or airbags were mandatory only in the late 90s. Right. Yeah. Up until the late 90s, you didn't need an airbag in your car. And so, you know, where people are saying, you know, keep the government out of my business and you know, they should have nothing to do with it. I think there are safety regulations that are absolutely needed to just keep people alive. And I wonder who on, on along the, the chain of command, and depending on whose pockets are being lined, there, my suspicion is that not to dump on Boeing. I mean, they've kept Seattle going for a while. <laughs> you know, in the pre-Microsoft here, I mean, as uh, Boeing went, so went Seattle. We know this from history. There, but in terms of Boeing, they have their share of responsibility, no doubt. But what about the people on the other end, on the receiving end of this, who make a decision about how much they're willing to spend and how they calculate? They're the degree of safety measures necessary to put a plane safely in the air and return it back to Earth with everybody healthy and intact. Somebody is making decisions on a cost-effectiveness ratio that would scare people of any sensitivity to the humanity of it all. It's almost like you have to just take you have to to take the human element out when you're making decision about design and about budgets. And this is going to be true with any customer from a, an airline to the federal government itself. Yes, that's absolutely right. Uh, and since when did, did uh, were human lives not factored into cost efficiency? <laughs> I mean, you're, you're going to pay a hell of a lot more in, in, in lawsuits than they would have, you know, than they, than they say. So, and, and, and to say nothing of the morality, the ethics of it, it's, it's, it's become a, it's become a, a serious, serious problem. I'm glad that we finally decided to to ground those, you know, that aircraft. But we were we were one of the, the the last people to say that we would do that because we're in bed with because the government is in bed with Boeing. So it's 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 right. it's a tragedy on, on a lot of different levels. I think. Hmm. We're going to continue to follow that story, no doubt. And uh, who knows? Maybe on a future occasion, we'll be discussing this in the wider ethical context, Mark Matuzic, because you have so much to offer. You're one of the true seekers. I admire you for that. I consider myself a, a very minor and occasional student of philosophy. I get caught up in daily details way too much for my own good. But for somebody like you who has really risen to the level of being a seeker of truth in full, you have my respect and my admiration. Oh, thank you, Gary. But I honestly do think philosophy is an everyday affair. I don't think it's—I don't see it as something that's all, you know set off in some rarefied or academic, you know, academic um, corner. Uh, it, I'm, I'm interested in the philosophy of everyday life, you know, and how do we bring uh, wisdom uh, and insight uh, and spirituality, however you define that, into our ordinary everyday lives. That's what matters. I mean, that's why this interests me, because people suffer. We all do in our lives, and we need answers to deep questions. And, and we don't live in a culture that, that uh, encourages that kind of inquiry, which is why I started the Seekers Forum, and it's why I so, uh, so love what I do, because it gives me the opportunity to talk about things that, that have kind of fallen out of the, the public conversation and need to be you know, brought back front and center, particularly now when, 
you know, so many people are questioning, uh, questioning ethics and morality and how can this be happening? Well, one of the reasons it's happening is that we don't have a, we don't have many standards for, for uh, ethical conduct. Uh, there you go. It's, 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 yeah. it's all political. I, I love that. Our yes. next conversation, I've got it already set up in my mind, Mark. We, we'll get you booked and we'll talk about ethical wisdom and the new normal. Ah. That sounds great. That sounds great. I'm so happy to talk to you guys. Thank you for being with us today, Mark. We know you have to go. We're going to go to a break. And when we come back, more to be said. But thank you, Mark, for joining us today. We really appreciate it. And your website, again, is www.markmatusic.com or seekersforum.com. So thanks once again. Have a great weekend. Thank you, Mark. The preceding audio was via a Skype call. Staying connected with Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell is easy. Just go to manceandmitchell.com for the latest info on topics and guests. Friend Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell on their Facebook pages and like the Mance and Mitchell show page at facebook.com slash manceandmitchell. If you're on Twitter, share a follow with Gary and Suzanne at Mance Mitchell. Join Gary and Suzanne Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for an unusual show that covers everything from personal growth to the paranormal. Here's an amazing act. Here's a tremendous act. Here's a startling act. The amazing, the thrilling, the greatest, spectacular, incredible, exciting, wonderful, world fame, most unusual novelty act. The home of the A-Team of Alternative Talk is ManceAndMitchell.com. Heard right here on Alternative Talk 1150 AM or streaming live from your computer anywhere. Did you know as many as 15 million Americans have been diagnosed with COPD, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease? Sadly, COPD is the third most common cause of death in the United States. Hi, I'm Representative Cindy Rhea from Washington. As many as 12 million adults may have COPD and not know it. COPD could include wheezing, cough, chest tightness, and shortness of breath, and it can vary from day to day. COPD is a disease that can worsen over time, and patients may experience flare-ups. Flare-ups can increase shortness of breath and uncontrollable coughing and may lead to hospitalization or even death. While COPD is not curable, there are treatments available to help you breathe better and prevent flare-ups. If you or a loved one has COPD, please talk with your doctor to create an action plan that fits your lifestyle. For more information, please visit womeningovernment.org. On Friday, Manson Mitchell welcome Mark Matusik, who talks about personal awakening and creative excellence through transformational writing. On Saturday, Lauren Archer discusses the joy of mindful living, the power of hypnosis, and cognitive behavioral approaches to a better life. Bringing you fascinating talk for 12 years. We are Manson Mitchell, Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 on Alternative Talk AM 1150. Alternative Talk, 1150 on AM, 98.9 HD3 on HD, 1150kknw.com on the web. If you have a thought, write it down. It may prove useful someday. That's a good working philosophy. I think there was more to be said about writing to awaken. We didn't read the book, but I thought his premise was interesting in that you have a self-inquiry and in writing down things that are about yourself things that you have thought or experiences you've had that you might find some thoughts you wish you wouldn't have anymore. And that's, that's what we talk about here on Manson Mitchell is, you know, how to change your thinking, how to change your life. Thoughts actually do have some weight and some power and how can we make our thoughts differently so that we're enjoying our lives more? How can we think constructively? You that know, goes way back. For suffer us. less, enjoy more. Unless suffering's your thing, in which case I'm not here to judge. Yeah. I'm also available by appointment. <laughs> For <So>. a nickel. <laughs> For, yeah, five that's right. Cents. Sadomasochistic <laughs> help, five cents. <laughs> there we go. Free lemonade in the lobby. But this is kind of a free form Friday, so let's just talk. Benny, I'd like to bring you on air because I want to pay some homage to the wonderful Ichiro Suzuki. Hey, Ichiro! Ichiro, hey, oh, that's what you heard there in New York. Yeah. There, but in Seattle, he will always, in my mind, be identified with the brilliance of his so called rookie year. I mean, he was quite an experienced player when he came to the Mariners. 
there was an old rookie there, but his his brilliance, the genius in his bat, in his eye, and in his feet was something else. When the Mariners were not a very good team, let's face it, and yet here he was beating out all of these infield hits. I'll never forget that. The word around the league was, if this guy hits the ball in your direction, you don't set up the throw to first base. You get the ball over there because he will beat your throw. Yeah, that's one of the most marvelous things I've ever seen from him and his arm way out there. And, you know, I've he read he actually what is it um he relived the moment i should say when uh, in japan this last couple of days while they're playing the mariners for their home openers uh it's like a laser beam and it's so far away his accuracy is just unrenowned it's just unbelievable and he could just do it over and at his age which is crazy enough already at 45 i mean that is quite the career but he's literally the magician i mean he did a lot of great things for some other teams not just the mariners you know for also he was a, a marlin for some a little stint right. so he's been bounced around but it's I, i'm glad he did his uh you know what he did and they kind of retired him but over there in japan too because that's kind of definitely where he got to start and to make the international uh, scene for us over here. It was an extraordinary career, mm -hmm. and you just like the guy. He's just someone, there's there's a kind of calm to him. I mean, he's not the first guy you think of in terms of starting a bench-clearing brawl or some such thing. You know, he just, he has this zen quality to him that I've always mm -hmm. admired. I think he's, he's just been fascinating throughout his career. Yeah. And of course, Father Time takes its toll, and he wasn't able to run out those uh, hits, leg them out, as it were. Thank God he was a Mariner when he could do that sort of thing because he was mesmerizing. Mm -hmm. well, yeah, we definitely had a good run for him. Uh, well, I'm just double up on his uh, stat. For, he was a Mariner from uh, 01 to 12, so it's a pretty good time frame right there for the Mariners, and hopefully we, you know, we had plenty of chances and we just kind of fell short quite a few times in the postseason, but um, that's just kind of how it happens, too. But, I mean, you come around. He's a seven-time All-Star over uh, in Japan, and then he was a ten-time All-Star here back, I mean, ten times in a row. That's unbelievable. That's a lot. Oh, yeah. and Gold Glove winning, and it's just good. for. It was definitely great for our city. We needed it. We have a huge uh, foreign relationship with everyone coming over to visit and have a good time. You know, of course, with Nintendo being in town and all the other great companies to support uh, the ownership of the Mariners, and yeah, I mean it's really cool. And he just he left on such a great note. We want all players to do pretty much what he did. Let me ask you this, Benny. We're we're just about at the start of the baseball season, and I don't personally follow baseball other than I enjoyed the fact that the Cubs won the World <laughs> Series a few years back. You live to see it. I live to see the the Cubs win when my parents did not. You could die in peace. <laughs> Yeah, but um, what is the prognostication for the Mariners this spring? Well, you know, with, uh, was it uh, our new GM, uh, DePoto? He's got this new vision for the Mariners. I mean, we haven't won or been to the World Series. We're itching for it. It's, it's been 42 grueling years. <laughs> grueling. Well, when you get to 108, let me know. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, he, uh, yeah, go so ahead. So does it does it seem like there's a, a chance for them to do well this year? Uh, I I don't have an answer. I'm like every year. Okay. I want them to do better than 500. And uh, Depoto, yeah. Depoto, that's his name. How that's how you pronounce it. Mm -hmm. Sorry, I apologize. Anyways, he's got a great vision. He's always about bringing, I guess, uh, no uh, non-faced people up from the rankings like ones that you never really heard of and they just gel so quickly kind of like uh the seahawks when they had the legion of boom everyone's like who's the legion of boom and within five years we were in the super bowl and it just we took over and then there's you know the downside to the legion of boom but they have their a new mini like new legion of boom i think the mariners have a good idea and with have a new fresh gm at the helm and he's got some good vision for the team, and I think we have some good chances, hopefully, to get to the postseason this year. But that would be a wonderful good. thing. I think is he looking? Is this gentleman looking to turn the Mariners into more of a power hitting? Play? You know, back in the day when when it was Kingdom before before the Kingdom was dust in the wind, mm -hmm. there it was said with that that artificial turf, the ball hopped oddly and it traveled very rapidly, so that. Uh, you know, if you could hit the ball out of the park, that certainly was convenient. And it's always nice to have runs bunch up quickly like that. Yeah. But I'm just curious to know, 
with uh, the Mariners in their stadium and with the personality of the team? Are they going to be playing kind of National League ball where it's going to be pitching speed and defense, or are they looking for the sluggers like the New York Yankees always seem to find? Well, I mean, the Yankees are a different ball club. They have a little bit more of a bankroll and they a little can, bit more <laughs> well okay i'm just trying to be polite but no really endless money to spend on the best talent that's the thing they used to be yeah. the the devil of of every season yeah. is, is that you could anticipate the yankees being there at the end that's what right. i'm saying yeah different teams have different strategies you know with jerry uh and i apologize he's the gm formerly from los angeles angels anaheim apologies not boston um i like speed and i played a lot of softball i played baseball when i was younger if you can get on base and you can play heads-up ball, it doesn't matter how hard you have to hit it. Just get it out of the infield, and you just truck. And we, I like speed on a team and get people to like definitely make mistakes on their throws because of our speed. And when you run around, you got to cross home plate, and that's what wins are, are those runs. you got to get the runs in. So to, for me to like crush it out of the park every time, it's not going to win games because there's a lot of pop-ups too. You know, you got to, you just got to push those runners around. You got to get them on base, and I think that would be their good strategy. And then to uh, flip that coin, one of the things I always liked about Tommy John was that he knew how to keep the ball down. He wasn't going ever going to lead the league in strikeouts, but Mm-mm. that wasn't his pitching strategy. He wanted to get outs. He trusted that his right. fielders knew how to field the ball, and so he would keep that ball down. And consequently, he would give up fewer home runs and he could pitch to whatever stadium that way, because the idea is to get your fielders involved, get those put outs and rack up some wins. And it worked for him. That takes a a certain kind of pitcher and it takes a certain kind of pitching coach in order to have that become integral to the personality of the team. And a classic pitcher for us who uh, was one of the longest uh, playing or oldest playing pitchers was Jamie Moyer. Jamie Moyer with the Jamie Moyer Foundation. He was one of those exact guys. His age was creeping up on him, but he was a finesse pitcher. He got you jammed a lot, and then he would have his fielders take care of it for you because that's what he did. He was really good at that. And then when he went to Philly, he kept it up for another couple years before he retired. So I'm so glad you mentioned him, and what a fine man in the community, a great family man, yeah. a philanthropist. He was great. He yeah. epitomizes in some ways mm-hmm. they're better than anybody else. Can't forget about Junior, and we won't. There, but or Harold Reynolds. <laughs> Harold Reynolds yeah. mm-hmm. was another one. But Jamie Moyer was one of those guys. And if he were in Los Angeles, he would have made the perfect Dodger because I grew up in Southern California. And that was the kind of guy you wanted on the Dodgers. And they got one, for example, in Rick Monday. Right. That sort of guy. You are correct. You are correct. I think that'll about wrap it up there, guys, for our sports talk. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks so much for that, and congratulations on a wonderful career and a wonderful life, Ichiro. Yep. Hope to see you around town when we're there. That would be great. I'll, I'll meet him for some clam chowder at Ivers, that's for <laughs> <Right>? sure. <laughs> Anytime. Who do we have coming up next, Suzanne? Christine Upchurch, followed by Susan Harmon. And then there's this show that's on for a half hour after that. Half hour show, American Road Trip Talk. With, with a, yours truly. With a famous guest. And it's just, well, she has a, a lot of host. famous, I, well, I don't know about that. You struck out on that when they're each your own. <laughs> but at any rate, it's Trip Talk. That will be at 1 o'clock Pacific time. Hope you will join us. Thanks so much for joining us for Manson Mitchell. Glitches and all, we are so delighted whenever you join us on the airwaves. We'll be back tomorrow, 10 a.m. Pacific, right here on AM 1150, Seattle's home of alternative talk. Until then, let this be the start of a great weekend in your life. The preceding audio was via a Skype call.